rather than uh, a romanticized ideal of Christmas, I want to talk just uh, on four little brief things about this passage that I think would be beneficial to us to keep in mind during this celebration of Christmas. Um, I don't know if if you've ever experienced this, but sometimes Christmas can be really um, idealized. Would that be a good word for it? Who who remembers the song "Away in a Manger"? Away in a manger, no crib for a for a bed. The little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Christmas carols, but "Away in the Manger." That is on my axe list, as in I'm going to axe it and never do it again. The reason why, in the at the phrase, the little cow or the something cow lowing, the baby awakes, something something, no crying he makes. Are you kidding me? Jesus Christ, God incarnate, came to experience life as a baby, and you're telling me that Jesus Christ didn't cry or fuss out of the pain of being squeezed through a birth canal. So that's just what I mean when I say Christmas has a tendency to become idealized. Christmas, we do not see it as a time merely to give gifts uh, in the remembrance of the gift that God gave to humankind, but we, we tend to, in our culture, kind of beat it up a lot and really rob it of the, the teeth that I think Christmas demands. And um, this is probably going to be a very peculiar message for you. But I think that this, this message, and again, I, I want to keep it brief, has some things to tell us about the, the way that God operates with his children and how he remains faithful to himself and his promises. So with that, these uh, four things I want to look at. I want to look at the sovereignty of the census that uh, that took place. The census that we all know about, why they went to Bethlehem. I want to look at the underpinnings uh, of why and how God was sovereign in and through that that operation of the the um, King of Rome. I want to look at this idea that Christmas is not just about no crying he makes away in a manger on a still soft night where it was you know, where they couldn't find any room for Jesus. All of those things are true, and they're precious and vital. However, Christ comes in the context of setting up his kingdom, diametrically opposed and antithetical to the kingdom of man. And that is one of the central tenets of what Christmas and a Christmas celebration needs to include. I want to look at this idea of shepherds and signs, that is, the the angels that came, if you remember well, uh, uh, my favorite part of Christmas is actually not just worship and, and church and the exchange of gifts and friends and family. Those are all great, but I really love watching uh, the Peanuts version of Charlie Brown's Christmas um, because in it, Linus, uh, you know, he quotes basically from the King James Version a really great passage, this passage, and um when he does it in, in the King James Version, he talks about the, the shepherds who were sore afraid. And I think that that, you know, say what you want about King James English, I think that phrase is very important, how they were sore afraid. They were inten- intensely afraid. Uh, this was not, you know, the angels are not these perfect, you know, they're wearing white garments and they're glittery. They're flaming up with fire and they've got swords in their hands. And they, uh, if they're anything like the the what Ezekiel saw by the river, angels are terrifying. 
And that's why they were so afraid. And I want to look at why they were terrifying. And then finally, the faithful response of Mary as contrasted to the other people. So the prophet Micah um, proclaimed long ago that out of Bethlehem would come a ruler. And he did so in a time when, again, we've been talking about this theme for weeks now, Israel unfaithful, turning to idols, forsaking God, forsaking her maker and founder, and turning away. And yet Micah prophesies that little, the little town of David, where David came from, out of that town would come a ruler. Micah 5, 2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathath, whatever, who are too little. I, can anyone actually pronounce that? I don't know anyone who can actually pronounce that. You are too little, or who are you too little to be among the clans of Judah? From you shall come forth, for from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Now that to me is a beautiful phrase. Whose coming forth is from old. That's basically sore afraid. That, that's not language that we use anymore. We don't use like, you know, the, the new thing. Well, that's because most of our society is focused on the cult of new. We don't value things that were from of old. But, but Micah here is saying that the ruler, which is coming out of Bethlehem, it, that fact was established from of old. That is eternally established. God had it perfectly set in his mind that Jesus Christ would be established from before from from Bethlehem, and that was established from of old, or from another phrase that Paul uses to say, from before the foundations of the earth. And so, when we talk about this census, it has to be understood that the omniscient Yahweh, the, the Yahweh who knew all of the, the uh, ways in which his unfolding plan of redemption would actually be carried out, he is not also not only omniscient, but he is also omnipotent in that he is about to wield power on a worldwide scale to cause events to take place so that the family would arrive in the right city. God does this and he puts to shame the so-called king of kings or the emperor, Caesar Augustus. Now, this is uh, a lot of where my de- desire to describe Christmas as a time of, of overthrow of, of the you know, cult of man, or if you will, the kingdom of sin, kingdom of darkness, this is where it really hinges, knowing a little bit of history. Caesar Augustus was the first emperor of the uh, Roman Empire. That is, you know, the, they destroyed their republic, it imploded, and then he set himself up as emperor. And emperor simply means king of kings. When we describe Jesus as the king of kings and lord of lords, we are using that phrase and ideology that he is the emperor, or he, there is no other ruler over which, uh, you know, someone could be exalted. As in, you know, Caesar Augustus in his day was the most preeminent ruler over the whole earth. And so God intervenes in and among the desires of Caesar's heart, and he calls him to cause a census to be decreed. God didn't just put the rulers of the world to shame at the cross. He did so at the very beginning of Christmas. The actual day of Christmas itself, Jesus's birth itself was the start and uh, continuation of God unfolding his salvific plan for Israel and actually bringing about the destruction of the empire. And he did it at the very beginning of his son's life. The, The reason this is important is because all of Christmas is about the fulfillment of promises 
that God had made to his people. And they were waiting for thousands and thousands of years for these things to take place. Christmas teaches us what, that when we are uh, slow to believe God's promises or weary or depressed in any way, we should slow down. We should pause. We should remember God's faithfulness time and time again. And re- also remember that sometimes we have to wait for his salvation to be made manifest. That's what Christmas is. That's why we celebrate Advent over four whole weeks where we kind of talk about Christmas. And at the end, it's like, oh, you know, get here already. That, that's the de- intent and desire of celebrating Advent and then the explosive celebration that Christmas is. God promised to raise a ruler out of Bethlehem, and he waited right until the very moment when Rome was beginning to flex its muscles across the, wor- the world. This is God saying that I'm going to establish my anointed king on my holy hill, not your king in Rome at, at your own choosing for your own purposes. So with that in mind, notice the progression in this passage of the contrasts. The emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus, proclaims a word. He makes a decree, and that word's carried out by his governors. That word is powerful enough to cause the movement of all the people on the whole earth. In, in this way, Caesar Augustus in this passage is really established as a king of kings. But contrast that to God's plan. A single carpenter living in Nazareth, Nazareth itself, the name of that city being a word for contempt, submits to the decree and takes his almost family, his not yet wife, who is already pregnant to a dishonorably small town of Bethlehem. That is like, if you can imagine like a hall of mirrors or mirrors that you, if you set up two mirrors and you have one image in the mirror all the way at the right and one mirror, image in the mirror all the way at the left, they're exact opposites of, of, of each other. Rome, Caesar was establishing his own power, and God is beginning to topple that, and he does it in a way that looks lowly and extremely pitiful. Nazareth, if you remember in the Gospels, later on when they describe Jesus as the one who comes out of Nazareth, the, the, the claim or the, you know, the the controversy is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The reason Micah has to say, Bethlehem, you're not too small, is because they thought Bethlehem, you know, is on nobody's radar in the kingdom of Israel. Bethlehem is like smaller than Dayton. <laughs> Does this make sense? Uh, being from Dayton, we think our city's big, but whenever you talk to somebody from like San Francisco or Chicago or New York, they're like, where? <laughs> Even though we're... If, yeah, Emily brought a globe to our home after we got married and, you know, Columbus isn't there, Cincinnati's not there, Dayton's there on the globe. Uh, and, and I'm just thinking to myself, what did they get wrong here? You know, this is how pitiful God's plan looks in the eyes of, of the minds of men. God had established that King Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. He wields his sovereign hand, moves the heart of the king to call a decree to have everyone on the earth go back to their original hometown, and then in that context brings forth his king. From the very beginning, Jesus Christ's life then is to be understood as a demonstration of the wisdom of God toppling the wisdom of man. Jesus doesn't begin to operate in his earthly ministry and then do things that are contra wisdom of man. God's entire plan of redemption always does not make sense to the rational mind or the fleshly mind. 
The righteousness of God's kingdom is demonstrated in the story as the king who is higher than the heavens, taking the lowest place. And this has a serious ethic and moral uh, dilemma that it presents to us, especially as people in a culture where, you know, as most of us in the room were middle-class Americans with a lot of economic power, this message teaches us that we must be considerate of those who are the lowest in society. We see Jesus's humility in this story, and we learn that we too must step stoop down for the least in the kingdom of heaven. It's not enough to celebrate Christmas and get extravagant gifts for all of the people who get you extravagant gifts. Christmas calls us, the story calls us, God calls us to lay our lives down in the celebration of him laying his life down. So God's establishing his arm of salvation for all the peoples of the earth. So naturally, what would, what would you do? He dispatches some angels to talk to some shepherds in a field. It doesn't make any sense at all. Again, God is confounding the wisdom of man. It, it, this is like deciding you want a battle plan to go invade another country and you get a bunch of toddlers and show them blueprints and strategies for war. This is absolutely foolish when you think of, of the way that you would announce a king's birth. There's, there's all sorts of stories through both English and German literature over the years uh, that describe what happens at the birth of kings or when a king comes into a city or when a king is celebrated as the new king to take place on the throne. One of my favorites is actually Disney's Robin Hood when they're, uh, the, the evil king is um, actually, you know, going around and oppressing the people. And the, the people in the city, they actually uh, make a song about him. And in the song, they, they put a curse. They say a pox on, a pox or chicken pox, a, a pox on the phony king of England. And this is exactly, you know, like when, when a king is righteous, even Proverbs says that when the city has righteous leaders, the city rejoices right? The cause for the rejoicing here is that a righteous king has finally been brought to the, to the, you know, to the world. And there is no righteous king before Jesus Christ, which is at all worthy of any sort of pomp, circumstance, honor, etc. And yet God decides to send some angels to talk to shepherds. Again, this, this blows our minds. We, we, we can't understand God or his ways. It's way beyond us. But the meaning of this is explicitly clear. It may seem silly, but it actually means that Jesus is the true King of Israel. Now, I'm sure by now you've heard me say this three weeks in a row, Jesus Christ is the true King of Israel. But bear with me, there's one last dimension of that fact, which we have to look at. Remember when when God called David uh, to be the king, all the tribes of Israel get together and they at first attempt to make him king before it's time. But one of the things that they say gives an indication to the Hebrew mind on what a shepherd and a king and how those two are related. They seem diametrically opposed to us, but they're intimately related in the Hebrew mind. They came together and they said to David, in times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people, Israel. You shall be my prince over Israel. When God established a king, King Saul before David, he established David uh, like he established Saul, and he didn't establish them as sovereigns left to their own decisions. The king in the old covenant was underneath the law of God, just as any ruler today should be. 
And so in this context, though, the Hebrews are basically saying that David, even though Saul was, was the king, so to speak, David was the actual one who was functioning as the king. He would take Israel out. He would bring them back in. These are images of a shepherd who has uh, you know, a place where his sheep live. He lets them out. You know, Jesus said he was the gate, right? He takes Israel out and he brings Israel back in and he watches over them. This is what David means when he says, the Lord is my shepherd. He's saying that I'm the king, but I recognize, unlike Saul before me, that the king is my king. And, And so this is what is meant by God sending his angels, his warriors, to describe to some shepherds about the, you know, the the uh, pronouncement that his son or the the Christ child has been born in Bethlehem. He says to that, the angels say to the, to the shepherds, uh, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth with men whom he's uh, pleased with. And then in that, they go and start to tell other people. The shepherds hearing first indicate both the pastoral life and ministry of the Christ. That is, Jesus Christ was not just another king. He was a king who would truly be a king and shepherd. Not only would he be a shepherd in the sense of actually taking care of the sheep, watching out for them, he himself would lay his own life down. And again, as I mentioned before, just like David, David acknowledged God's rule over his life, but even David rebelled against Yahweh's law. And so Christ actually lays down his life for the, for the sheep. He is the true shepherd. After the shepherds hear this from the angels, they start to go look. They were told by the angels that it's happening in Bethlehem. And then they basically say, well, let's go to Bethlehem. Who knows how far they, they were away. But at the, at the end of the day, they arrive at, uh, at the event and just like we saw last week, the two days ago, just like Isaiah saw the vision and then spoke forth the decree, the uh, shepherds do the exact same thing. Luke 2, 17 through 19, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. They heard the things that the angels had told them about the destiny of Christ and the fact that glory should be given to God. But until they saw it with their own eyes, they weren't yet ready to tell of it. This exactly this happens over and over again with Thomas in the Gospels, other times where Peter doesn't believe Christ, and then, you know, with the, the boats and fishing all night, same with the denial of Christ at the crucifixion and trial. This is a pattern over and over again. Until we see, we cannot speak forth. So look at the difference between Mary and those who just heard. And all who heard about it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Doesn't that sound familiar? I have hidden thy word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Part of Mary's faithful response here is faithfulness in light of the uh, tendency of disbelief and sin. Some of those people, they heard the oracles of God through the shepherd and merely just wondered at them. But David, or but Mary, like David before her, treasures these things. The temptation always, whenever we hear a word from God, is to doubt or to put qualifiers on it, like if the Lord wills or, or something like that. Occasionally, that's prudent and wise, but most often it's a mask for unbelief and faithlessness. Mary is, is in this place... Uh, honoring the Lord's word by treasuring it 
and actually meditating upon what has just been said. We must absolutely do the same. It's imperative that when we hear God's word, we, we can't simply respond in a simple admiration. It's not enough this Christmas season for us to see the nativity or to hear once again the story and simply say, well, that's really nice. I'm, I really love Christmas. That's awesome. We must go beyond that to the point where we see, we really behold like the shepherds who when they saw, then they begin, began to tell. It's imperative for us that through the reading of the scriptures, both in, in, in uh, service and at home, the, the actual practice of the faith, that we begin to behold these things so that our mouths would be open to speak and share the good news. That's, that's what Christmas presents to us. And it's my prayer that God would grant us the grace to treasure his word and not just simply hear it once again and move on. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask that you would help us to see your sovereign hand wielding power, mocking Caesar as he rails against you, involving him, his own very actions of selfishness to count his empire, that, that you even worked through those to bring about the arrival of your your chosen servant, Mary, and her betrothed Joseph to arrive in the city that you prophesied by the word of Micah generations beforehand. You are marvelous and magnificent, God. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see the beautiful role of Jesus as the king, the true king over Israel and the king over all the world, that we would like your people of old and your church for the last 2,000 years, we would submit ourselves to the rule of Christ, that his word and his law would be over us, and that we would submit to his reign. Lord, we also ask that you would give us the wonderful grace that Mary had that night, that when she heard the prophecy and the foretelling by the angels via the shepherds, that we would actually treasure what you've done in our hearts that we would treasure it in such a way that it wouldn't just be simple admiration or something we used to do, but that it would become true living faith. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful wonderful celebration. We do ask, Lord, that your spirit would attend all of the celebrations that we have as families over the next few days, and that you would speak to those members of our families who do not yet recognize your reign over their life and Lord, we do ask that you would also strengthen our hearts in the knowledge of your word and in the love of Christ. God, we we pray that your spirit would prompt us this season of Christmas to see how beautiful you are, not just as a baby in a manger, but also as the sovereign God who rules over the whole earth and causes all things to work together for your purpose. Lord, we thank you for what you've done in, in this passage. We ask, Lord, that it would be alive to us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.